I wanted you all to know that I had a really, really funny story that we were going to be starting off with today. It was about Welsh rugby, and it was, it's just a great story, and I'm going to tell it to you a different time. Because while we're going to use the same scripture from James, and while the point that I believe he's making is the same, the events in Charleston this week are going to change the way we're going to get there. And so for parents, I want you to know that we're going to be talking about this today, and I'm going to leave that to your discretion as to what we do. We're not going to sensationalize things. We're not going to try to make things too detailed or dramatic, but we're also not going to ignore them. And so uh, I want you to know that and trust your judgments with all of that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would speak to us from your word because all of us need to hear from you. All of us. We pray that your word would become more real to us and through us through this world. It's in Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. All right, so we're continuing with our series on James. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And listen to God's word to us today. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the other one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who says you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. So, like many of you, I was shocked at the evil that took place on Wednesday night at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. I was outraged. I was deeply saddened. And it leads you to a place of many questions and many prayers. While that event was tragic, one of the other sad places to me over the last few days has been the public discourse that has taken place in many corners of our media in response. The debate, the arguing, the finger pointing, and it continues to convince me that we as a culture have an enormous problem with being able to have civil discourse in difficult issues. It started that I saw with a statement that was made the day after the events in Charleston where the country was asked, when 
at what point they were going to have to wrestle with the fact that violence, as we saw there, does not happen in other advanced countries at the same rate around the world. And the response from the other side was immediate to that, with statistics that were different and with trenches that were drawn, and then the first side drew their trenches and pointed fingers, and the voices were raised, the fingers were pointed, and somewhere in that debate, nothing happens except that the tragedy fades a little bit into the background. Or the question about, was this another example of mental health that needs reform in this country? Was this somebody that needed uh, more opportunities to receive help? Had they received too much help and too much medication? Others pointed and angrily said, no, this isn't an example of any of that and the issues going on in our country. I saw interviews where people were shouting at each other about this on TV and trenches were drawn and spins were put out there of prefabricated arguments and quotes that were uh, worked out before the actual debate actually took place and people accused each other of who was wrong and Nothing happens except that the tragedy fades a little bit more into the background. Or the issue of whether the Confederate flag should be flying over the state house in Columbia in South Carolina. Ought that to be forcibly removed as a sign of the racism that still exists and is condoned that allows for an event like what happened in Charleston to take place? Should it be forcibly taken down and removed? And the other side immediately responded by saying, you don't understand what this is about and you don't understand the culture behind it and you, the trenches were drawn and the, hur- the accusations were hurled at each other and nothing changes except that the tragedy fades further into the background. I don't know if I'm the only one, but it is distressing to me. It is worrying to me because it stunts all of our growth as a people and our inability to have a conversation, even in the midst of great tragedy, where we can really listen, hear, consider, reconsider our own positions rather than figuring out how quickly we can point the finger at blame at the people on the other side of whatever position we hold. I'd like to be a part of something better than that. I don't know if I can be. I don't know if I'm even able to. But I'd like to be a part of something that's a little bit different from the accusations and the spin and the prefabricated arguments. And into that, into that thought process for me comes the scripture passage from James this week. James, who is talking to the first church, and what he's doing in that first church is he is setting up what is an alternative kind of community. He's setting up an alternative kind of community in a world that, like ours, had a lot of divisions and a lot of walls and a lot of differences. And James here is saying that the church ought to be the place where we don't exist behind those walls. The argument that he makes is a very, very important one because he says that, yes, these uh, these differences are real, but they are trumped now by the unity we have as being Christ followers. Because we have been claimed by God, the unity that we have in the name of Jesus now is more important than all of the divisions and differences that society recognizes. And that we need to live beyond those walls and those labels and those stereotypes and those polarized positions. Now what he's talking about here is the issue that was existing in the church at the time between the the different treatment between wealthy Christians and poor Christians. And I want to in no way insinuate that we have advanced beyond that. 
We certainly in Austin, Texas in 2015 have a lot to hear about the walls of socioeconomic differences that keep us separated one from another. But I also want to expand the conversation because the argument James is making that, that this claim of Jesus on our lives trumps the differences of rich and poor also expand into other areas that keep us different. Areas like race, areas like nationality, areas like gender, and areas like political and theological convictions, areas that allow us to hopefully be a community where we can model what it means to move beyond the walls of liberal and conservative and that sit there and hurl rocks at each other. James is setting a different way of being that if you and I in our day and age could capture it, we would shine like stars in the midst of this generation of spin and prefabricated arguments. So what would that mean? What would it look like based on this passage? What would it mean for you and I to model something different in our life together here for the world to see? Well, the first thing that I think it means, and this is an incredibly difficult thing to do, is that when we are confronted with news that is challenging, like what came out of Charleston this week, when we are confronted with people who see things, with Christians who see issues from a different perspective, who vote differently or think differently than we do, part of our uniqueness ought to be that we should listen to different points of view with humility and with prayerful consideration before we speak. We should listen out of, a, out of a sense of needing to confess our own incompleteness before we start talking. Because James here is not saying, hey, some of you guys do this. Some of you have this tendency to favor people that are like you. Some of you have this tendency to gravitate towards people who are like you. What he's saying is, you do this. We all do it. I do it. We all do it. We find far more comfort in being with people who are like us, who reinforce our worldview, than we do in being with other folks. He says that you're doing this when it comes to issues of poverty. And so now he says you can form something different when you own that, when you hear that out of a sense of confession. So what would that mean? What would that mean today if you and I could be different? Well, some of what it would mean is let's put this in the area of politics. Let's put this in the area of theology. There is a great gulf that is gridlocking our country and is gridlocking our churches on issues that don't need to gridlock us by our inability to hear out of a spirit of confession. What would it mean? Well, here's, what I, here's an example. What would it mean if you're somebody who politically or theologically considers yourself conservative? What would it mean? Well, what that might mean is that you hold a position and we hold a position that some people would look at us and say, well, that's closed-minded. That's not loving. That doesn't make me feel cared for. That doesn't make me feel heard. That doesn't make me feel affirmed. That's, the, that's some of the, 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 the rocks. And, it, and for those of us who are conservative, you, you know that because you've heard that before. And so our response in defensive is, is, is to kind of try to change that. But what would it mean if we stopped and prayerfully considered if God wants us to hear something in that? What would it mean before we were speak and respond and retaliate and, and, and say how that's not true? What if we thought and said, okay, let me consider that for a minute. 
That doesn't mean you give up your convictions. That doesn't mean you just flip-flop to the other side of an argument. But it means that this is a chance to say, okay, we are in Christ together, and so I am going to choose to listen and hear and prayerfully consider before I just give you my immediate response. We don't hold the positions we do because we're trying to be uncaring or unfeeling. We're not trying to do it to be what some people consider unjust. We're doing it because we live in a world that is changing rapidly, in a culture that is changing rapidly. And in that rapid change, there are things that we look at that are going, man, I don't know if we want to move in this way. I don't know if we want to give this up. I don't even know if we're prayerfully and and thoughtfully considering this. We're just sort of doing it and we're going in these directions and it's moving quick. And so we kind of draw walls to protect our values and our institutions and we feel comfort in getting with people who have the same viewpoint and outlook on life. But if that is creating a system, if we're contributing to a system of polarization, then maybe we need to say, okay, God, this is a hard thing for me to hear, but what if you're trying to speak a hard truth to me rather than just respond? Or for those of us who are liberal, it's no different. Liberals struggle with this absolutely as much as conservatives do because liberals like to get behind our walls and be with people who are like us and kind of look down our noses at people who think differently. And what we fail to recognize is the absolute hypocrisy in our position when we sit there and say, I am open-minded. I have defined what open-mindedness is. You need to be open-minded as well. And if you're not, I don't want to listen to what you have to say because you're intolerant. We absolutely have to see the hypocrisy that comes with that statement. And therefore, when people look at us as liberals and say, you know, you seem closed-minded, you seem like you're just kind of with people like you, you seem kind of snobbish and looking down your nose at anyone who disagrees with you, rather than just responding and retaliating as quickly as we can out of a sense of self-righteous indignation, what if we sat there and say, okay, God, what if you want me to hear this? What if we were an alternative kind of people who heard challenging messages out of a spirit of consideration and humility and prayerful response versus just how quickly can I give my response because I know my position. What would that look like? James says if we could do that, then it would look really different. That our response to issues that happen in our culture whether it's what happened in Charleston or the riots that took place in Baltimore or issues like what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, that you and I ought to be some of the only people whose first response is to listen and prayerfully consider before we start talking. Our response to Charleston ought to be, as Christians, Lord, how have I, maybe in the smallest and most unintended of ways, how have I contributed to a culture where these kinds of events take place? What would it mean to take the plank out of my own eye before pointing out the speck in the person on the other side? That's what James is talking about. He's talking about a community where our unity and our trust of each other allows us to come out from behind those differences and listen and prayerfully consider before we respond. And then he says, and if you can do that, if you can do that, and the world would marvel if we can do it because the world can't do it. The only place, true equality, no matter how much we sing about it and talk about it in culture, the only place it will ever be found is the foot of the cross. 
It's the only place that human beings in action will move out from behind their walls and their positions of favoritism and truly understand themselves as one people because it's at the foot of the cross of Jesus that we kneel and say, Lord, we are a broken people in need of your grace and then we receive the grace of God equally as one. It is only there that we will ever be able to truly understand our common humanity. So what would that look like? James says if we could do that, if we could have that confessional nature, that's when the exciting stuff starts to happen. He says, because that's when you can start to change. That's when you can start to grow. And isn't that the point of why we're here in the first place? I mean, isn't the point of why we're here is because we confess we're broken and sinful people that need God's grace and God's enlightenment and God's direction? I mean, isn't that why churches exist? If not, we, shouldn't, we should just board it all up, right? Think about how mission trips work. See, we see this all the time. In mission trips... That is a process where we move beyond barriers that normally keep us separate, and then we encounter God there, right? We do it out of our unity in Christ. We send people to Zambia every year. We send people to Cuba every year. We send people to Belize uh, this past year. We right now have our middle school students in ministry that are in Oklahoma City doing mission work. We can do this in Austin through street youth ministry, through the work that Alan and Julie Weeks are doing in East Austin. There are all kinds of opportunities. And, and mission work, whether it's local or international, and many of you have done this, and all of us need to, it requires us to move beyond the walls that normally keep us separate from one another, right? And that's uncomfortable, right? Because you're going to encounter people who speak different languages, who eat different foods, who have different hygiene, who uh, have different values, who have different traditions, who use different terms, who might vote differently, who might have different addictions. There might be all different, you're like, okay. And so when anytime you go on a mission trip, there will be a part of you going, okay, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little uncomfortable. This is different. but we return changed. We don't return going, oh yeah, well I help some people. That's not what happens. It's gonna happen with these students that return from Oklahoma City. I promise you they're gonna come back in a number of days going, if God changed me as much as God allowed me to change the situation there, those people are blessed. We come back from these experiences and God takes our world and moves it from this to this. It's in moving beyond those differences that we ourselves are changed. Or take what happened in Belize when our high school ministry, and many of you participated in that, came back. We have students that are now thinking about international mission work who weren't thinking about that before. We have students and, and adults that are thinking about issues of global poverty and global justice in a way that they weren't before. Yes, we went there and served. Yes, we crossed cultural barriers and made a difference. But what happened is we did so as God took our world from this and just expanded it in the most unbelievable of ways. Bruce Larson was the senior pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle a number of decades ago. And he talked about this issue and this choice that we as Christians need to make, about how we live, how we form the kind of community James is talking about. And this is what he said. He said, every Christian has to make a choice. He was in a church that, like ours, was a large church, and they had, had different socio-political elements going on in culture, and there were liberals and there were conservatives, and it was threatening to kind of pull the church apart. And Bruce Larson said, and we need to hear this and make this decision too, he said that all Christians have to make a basic choice in community. And that is, are you looking for a community where you can grow, or are you looking for a community where you're told you're right? Are you looking for a community where you can grow or are you looking for a community where you're told you're right? Friends, no matter what your convictions are, you, I promise you, you can go find a church that will just reinforce everything you already think. 
It'll just say, hey, everything you think, you're right. And everyone else is wrong who thinks differently. And in the short run, that's so comforting because you can just sit there in your homogeny and go, yeah, we're just all so right and everybody else is just so wrong. We're so enlightened and everybody else just doesn't understand it. We're so biblical and everybody else isn't. But what happens when we do that is we stunt our growth. We stunt the ability to change. We stunt the ability to grow. And as we talked in the beginning, we need to be confessional people. So I'm not going to speak for any of you now. I'm going to speak as a person. I'm going to speak for myself. I need to grow. I need to grow. I do not need to be in a place, as comforting as it would be, that looks at me and says, the kind of dad you are, the kind of husband you are, the kind of pastor you are, the kind of citizen you are, the kind of uh, way you vote, everything's just right. Everything's great. I don't need to be there. I have strongly held convictions on many of the issues that are facing us as a culture and as a society. But I believe that when I die and I go and meet Jesus face to face, there are going to be places and times that Jesus is going to look at me and he is going to say on issues I strongly believe in, boy, you missed it. I believe the words of the Apostle Paul are true, which is that all of us right now see in a mirror dimly. I believe that. That doesn't mean I give up my convictions, but it is a humility in me that allows me to say, I need to be challenged. I need to grow. I don't need to be told I'm right. I need something more than that. How about you? We as a church don't often get this right. We fail in our ability to live together as one in Christ in our differences. We fail just like the world does because it's so easy to choose the path where we just reinforce our preordained views of how things work. But sometimes we're faithful. Sometimes we're different than that. Sometimes we're bigger. And this week in Charleston, in the midst of great evil, we saw Christians shining like stars. And in the midst of the talking heads and the blame and the accusations and the rocks being hurled from one side to the other, the world stopped and marveled for a brief moment as followers of Jesus gave witness to how we can be different when we look inward first and consider how God wants us to be rather than what our natural instinct is. And it happened in the arraignment trial of the, accused, of the accuser where the nine Victims' families, maybe for the only time, were able to look and address both the court and the world, but the accuser of what they had done. And if there was ever a group that had right to cast blame, to throw stones, to be angry, if there was ever a group that had right to do it, it was those people. And as they watched, the words that poured forth from these followers of Jesus were words of love and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And it was different than any other message coming out. I want to bring up a quote here that was given by one of the women who spoke, Bethane Middleton Brown, who was the sister of DePayne Middleton Doctor, who died. Bethane, in the court, stood and addressed the accuser, the one who had inflicted this great tragedy. And while he would not look her in the eyes while she spoke, he could not cover his ears and had to listen to these words. And I want you to listen to them because I don't know that I could utter them. She said, for me, I'm a work in progress. I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing that DePayne always enjoined in our family is she taught me that we are the family that love built. 
I've gotten through every one of these sermons. <laughs> totally fine. We are the family that love built. A great definition for church. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. And I pray to God for your soul. Who starts that way? Who starts with a statement of confession? Who starts addressing this individual with acknowledging their own brokenness and their own work in progress? Who does that? We do. That's how we live. That's how we act. That's the calling James is putting before us today. This sister in faith gave a statement and witness to the world and people stopped and noticed what would it mean in our polarized society this day and this week? What would it mean for you to take this same posture? What would it look like? The light has shone in the darkness, friends, and the darkness will not overcome it. We are the ones to bear witness. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge our desire to be comfortable. We acknowledge our desire to be told we're right. We acknowledge the idol that we create of ourselves and our own points of view. We acknowledge that we are guilty of not listening, of not considering, of not looking inward, of speaking before we think of refusing to let different viewpoints mold and challenge us and shape us. It is so much easier for us to live this way. But you have called us to something bigger. You have called us to grow. You have called us to choose unity and to allow our diversity to expand our horizons. May we make the choice to live in this to listen confessionally, to consider confessionally how we have failed at this and to God follow you into being something more. We pray for those in Charleston. We lift them before you. We pray for the accused and his family. We lift them before you as well and ask that you would change and mold hearts and change lives and that it would bear witness to a kingdom that is more loving than anything humanity can construct on its own. May your glory shine through us all, this day, this week, and always. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.